It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. I'm Jason Kebler, Editor-in-Chief of Motherboard, and this is Cyber, our podcast about hacking. I'm filling in this week for Ben Maku. Good morning. Well, as the number of mobile devices explodes, so does the number of attacks on our cell phones. It may be much easier to hack into a personal cell phone than you might think. The methodology of how we hack routers. Her Amazon device in her Portland home recorded a private conversation and sent that recording to a random contact. Which In the coming weeks, millions of people will get new phones, computers, Amazon Echoes, Google Homes, smart coffee makers, and other Internet of Things devices. All of these gadgets come with their own privacy, surveillance, and hacking risks. But there are steps you can take to minimize your exposure. So we thought it'd be a good time to talk about the Motherboard Guide to Not Getting Hacked, our comprehensive advice on digital security. We've released a new version of the guide every year for the last three years, adding and changing things as hacking threats and security best practices evolve. Here with me today to talk about the guide is Harlow Holmes, Director of Newsroom Digital Security at Freedom of the Press Foundation, and Lorenzo Franceschi Bicarai, a senior staff writer at Motherboard who wrote a huge chunk of the guide. So we recently published our third edition of the Motherboard Guide to Not Getting Hacked. Uh, Lorenzo, can you talk a little bit about where this project began three years ago and where it's at now? That's a good question. Actually, um, I don't really remember how we thought about doing this, but the question that inspired us to do this, I feel like, was... um, you know, what do you tell people um, about uh, how they can protect themselves? Like if someone comes to you and says, how do I not get hacked? What do you tell them? Um, and our, the answer for us was like a 10,000 word article, which maybe is not the best answer all the time. Um, but that was the, I guess that was the idea. Yeah, maybe a little overkill. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I've edited the guide the last two years and... Um, I think for me, it's something that has grown out of our reporting where, you know, Joseph and Lorenzo and other people at Motherboard are often talking to hackers and protecting sources and generally being paranoid about their own security. But we don't do a whole lot of service journalism where we're telling people how to protect themselves. So, you know, we are not, we're experts in this only in that we try to protect our own data and information and sources um, but this basically grew out of us just writing like what we do for ourselves. And that segues pretty well into, Harlow, what you do day to day, which is teach journalists how to keep themselves safe when talking to sources, right? Indeed, indeed. And I would actually say that um, seeing your guide and other articles at other news organizations um, is kind of the best line of defense that we have in, you know, like uh, advancing that message. So not a lot of journalists and not even just journalists, everyday people, uh, whatever hat you're wearing at the time can um you know, uh, afford to or know about uh, the type of digital security education that is out there. Um, And so uh, it was really, really heartening to see members of the press actually like promote these messages and promote these tools and practices um, and also just like make it uh, consumable. When people come to you at Freedom of the Press Foundation and say, hey, we want help, what are they usually asking for? Um, well, it depends. And you usually have a, a, a 
conversation with the news org um, to kind of assess what it is they actually do need. Sometimes it is what we like to call the low-hanging fruit, which is uh, mostly what's represented in uh, guides such as yours. So such as um, how do we address credential security? Um, and sometimes uh, it, it actually over the years, it's become a little bit more nuanced and a little bit more granular. So sometimes we have uh, reporters who either on uh, at the request of their news organization or individually just because they're concerned um, have questions about how to further protect themselves um, after being retaliated against for something that they print online um, or you know print wherever uh, and so we do uh, work on things like reputation management um, defense against doxing defense against a lot of tactics that we'd see and grow um, that was covered by so many of these news organizations such as yours um, growing out of like, you know, 2013 onwards. Um, sometimes it has to do with source communication. I prevent myself as much as possible. So if I do say it, let me know. Um, but I prevent myself from saying source protection because it's incredibly, incredibly difficult um, and it depends on so many factors. But source communication is uh, another thing that uh, people uh, reach out to us for. And the reason why is because uh, there's a lot of nuances. It's not only like what, you know, technically what you should be using, um, but it's also, you know, what we like to call the first contact conundrum, which is like, how do you properly um, prepare a, a, a source or a potential source um, when all they know is like, you know, how to DM you on Twitter um, and how to like level up their security in order to have a more confidential communication. Um, we also uh, talk to people about like metadata um, and, you know, the... Uh, the pluses and minuses in using it in, um, in a journalistic practice. Uh, we have sometimes like the more extreme stuff, which I find absolutely fascinating and is uh, what really, really impassions me about this job uh, because I love gadgets and getting away with stuff um, is, uh, you know, like the more extreme stuff like sandboxing and air gapping and uh, extreme travel scenarios and things like that. Yeah, Lorenzo, you've done some extreme travel scenarios, I think. Um, you know, you went to do a big story about Kaspersky down in Mexico and you prepared, you know, you made like a throwaway email address. Can you just talk <laughs> us through what you did to prepare for that? Yeah, I was a little paranoid about that trip. Um, so what I did for that trip was I got a burner phone, which is also, I guess, a... Um, like a word that doesn't mean exactly what you think it means. Um mm -hmm. I, I also have trouble with the term burner phone. I like to call it a travel phone. Yeah, so, so I, got a, I got a travel phone. Yeah. Um, I didn't use my work email while there. Um, I, as, as Jason said, I created a, an email specifically for travel. Um, and I just, you know, I told my significant other to uh, expect communications from certain people if something happened. Uh, I was probably being too paranoid, but I don't know. It was a, it was a good exercise to think about, um, you know, uh, what I should worry about in that scenario. And, and ultimately, I feel like that's uh, the key question. Um, you know, I think uh, a lot of people try to think about tools as solutions, and tools can be a solution, but they are not always the solution. So... Like the, the first thing that you have to ask yourself is what are you trying to protect and what are you trying to protect it from? Uh, 
And, you know, saying you signal, you store is not always the answer. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's this concept that kind of goes through our entire guide, which is threat modeling. And I think one thing I like to bring up from time to time, and I, I think it'd be considered like very insecure messaging, but in a very specific situation, it was quite secure, which is I knew someone whose, you know, boyfriend was surveilling her phone and, you know, was looking at her messages and looking at her chats and looking at her emails. And so she would message on Words with Friends, which had its own messaging platform, uh, which, you know, that guy didn't happen to know about. And that's a very specific and extreme situation. Like, you wouldn't think Words with Friends has a very secure messaging platform, and chances are it probably doesn't. But, um, you know, she was trying to hide certain things from him, and that was an effective way of doing that. So... Um, I mean, Harlow, do you guys talk about threat modeling with journalists and, you know, is what can the average person take away from this idea of like, what are you trying to protect and mm-hmm. who are you trying to protect it from? Um, that is a fascinating anecdote, actually. Um, I had not, uh, I was unaware of the words with friends thing, um, but it's uh, exemplary of something that we definitely do teach to people. As Lorenzo said, you know, the old adage, use signal, use tour, um, is kind of like insulting to a variety, for a variety of reasons. Um, and the reason is not because like any of these technologies are bad, they're actually the state of the art, but that's only on the technical level. And um, there are so many um, uh, kind of concessions that you have to make in order to have an effective conversation. So what we actually do in um, our trainings is we teach this along a matrix. So if you can imagine like an X and a Y axis and along your Y axis, you actually, you know, that's the vertical one. Um, What you have is like, you know, Uh, how uh, effective a particular platform is in allowing you to have, you know, the kind of confidential conversation that you need. And so, you know, they're like, once again, like Signal does really, really well at that. But then we also have other applications out there, such as like WhatsApp, such as Facebook Messenger, (laughs) such as Words with Friends, apparently. Um, But then, uh, and you know, they they all have their different rankings on how um, true they are to, you know, technically speaking, maintaining the confidentiality of a conversation. But as your anecdote points out, there's also this x-axis where it's like how available something is and how applicable it is given a certain situation. And this is always going to be subjective. And so, um, for instance, uh, Signal is really, really awesome, but like, you know, like it's really... uh, I guess it's mostly prevalent and mostly accessible from the hacker community because you saw that episode of Mr. Robot or whatever. And so there are only going to be like a certain subset of people who can have a confidential conversation with you over signal. And also, um, not only like does this apply to people who are in a domestic violence situation, um, but also uh, it applies to people who might go through a border crossing where if someone sees signal on your phone, you're going to be um, open to to like extra questioning, if not worse. Or if you're in a country um, where, you know, like actually you can't reach the Google Play Store because, you know, of sanctions or whatever. And so being as like Signal is not available currently um, over any other means, uh, that's going to, you know, bar you from using that app. And so 
Um, this is why, you know, maybe like something like WhatsApp is a little bit more appropriate for the situation just because um, the, uh, the fact that it's so ubiquitous gives it a lot of cover, right? Um, and it makes it a great com- place to have a certain conversation, even though we know that there are, you know, just kind of flaws in uh, implementation in WhatsApp, but you can just kind of get around it that way. Um, as long as people are just not using, you know, basic text messages, I think uh, there's a lot of wiggle room in there. Right. So I think uh, in our guide, we say over and over again, the reason that the guide is 10,000 words and not use signal, use tour, mm-hmm. end of story is... But there's an excellent gif, though, where it's like Bart Simpson just like banging a pot saying, use signal, use tour. You could have published that. <laughs> we should have done that. Maybe we would have gotten more clicks. Um, <laughs> but I think the answer is always like it depends, depending on what you're trying to protect. Mm-hmm. Um you know, but there are some sort of like overarching best practices, which is why the guide exists at all. I think, um, you know, don't want to run through the entire thing here. You can read it on Motherboard if you're interested. But some basic stuff is like use two-factor authentication for most things, unless you are possibly subject to SIM hijacking, like which was our first episode on cyber. So uh, if you are subject to that, use a different type of two-factor authentication. Lorenzo, can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, two-factor is a great example of um, sort of a, an advice that everyone has always uh, given everyone when, you know, th- like if, if a relative, uh, you know, at Christmas or Thanksgiving asks you, like, what should I do not to get my email hacked? Like two-factor or multi-factor is a good answer. But the pitfall is you may depend on your phone number and your phone number may not be as secure as you think. And that's what we talked about in the first episode, and uh, we reported on it um, for a while. And that's a great example of like how a tool, or rather a concept that is by itself good, um, can still be weak, or rather has a weakness. Um, and you know, we go back to using all your store. Like, you know, tools are tools, and it depends on the situation. It depends on, and it depends who is going after you. I guess if you want to put it that way. Yeah, so this year we beefed up the two-factor authentication section of this and recommended, you know, most people should probably use uh, an app-based two-factor authentication or a physical token like a YubiKey. Um, You know, with the app, it's not really that much more difficult than using SMS. It's just a matter of setting up some settings in different, uh, different apps and accounts around the internet. Harlow. <laughs> yeah. And that's another place where there are also like a lot of nuances that actually have to do with, you know, the way that people actually use things. I agree 100% that um, uh, locking down your phone number so you don't have to rely on SMS messages for two-factor authentication um, is uh, the the best. Like you should definitely be using an app-based or a hardware token-based solution. Um, that said, there are a couple of things that people should think about when they're doing two-factor authentication. And this, these are tips that I've learned after like, you know, years of working with it and making mistakes myself and also seeing people struggle with it. The first thing that you should know is that um, most people go for, you know, Google Authenticator as their go-to for uh, the software token, the the app-based two-factor auth solution. Just know um, that, you know, um, there are cases where those will not be backed up. So if you drop your phone in the toilet or like it gets, you drop it in the subway, um, you're going to struggle because you will not have access to those two-factor auth tokens. And so migrating over to a new device is something that you have to plan for. 
for in advance. Um, I've been in situations where I have kept phones for years in a drawer because like I need the two-factor authentication codes from off of that device before I move it over. Um, and also like the more accounts that you use, the more cumbersome that becomes. So just be aware of that. There are apps um, that are alternative like Authy, for instance, or 1Password, which will um, allow you to, you know, like uh, keep those two-factor auth codes linked to an account. And that means that your two-factor auth codes are synced online. And that means that your your security of those two-factor auth codes are linked to the security of that platform that you're using. And so that's another thing that you have to weigh. Um, finally, uh, I always want to remind people that whenever you're setting up two-factor authentication, which is amazing and you should continue to do so, um, be aware that there are backup codes. Either, you know, in the case of Google, there might be like 10 codes that you can print or download to a file that you keep somewhere safe. Um, be uh, mindful of that and do take the time to print out those backup codes because uh, if ever you get like totally locked out of your account, um, that's going to, to help you out a lot. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yeah. Um, I think we're doing this episode now because it is around the holidays when a lot of people buy new devices and, you know, also are hanging out with family who say, how can I avoid getting hacked? You're uh, playing grandkid sysadmin, which is what I like to call it. Yeah, it's great. Um, Harlow, what do you do when you get a new device? Like, what are the first things that you do to, to secure it? Or do you just migrate the settings from something you set up years ago? Mm -mm. Uh, well, I, I kind of like to do it manually because uh, I'm a little bit of a masochist in that way. Um, but uh, it, first off, it depends on the device. Um, if it is a new phone, the first thing that I do is actually go through the restrictions. Uh, oh, sorry. This is speaking from an iPhone perspective. Um, go through the restrictions, set up that restriction pin, which is now like buried within screen time for some reason, um, and uh, use that. They're parental controls that prevent uh, an iPhone from doing anything fun. Um, and use that in order to just kind of rein in um, the apps that are going to be on your phone. Um, another, let's see, whenever I get an Android device, which I like, um, I, you know, just have a look at uh, the apps that are on there and make sure that, like, I'm using the granular permissions in order to rein them in as well. Um, I think an another thing that actually, uh, so, like, uh, people are going to get, Internet of Things devices like, you know, a smart coffee machine or uh, those light bulbs that you can program or whatever. They're so pretty. The they co are really the colors. Cool. 
<laughs> They're super cool. Um, I, I guess like this isn't necessarily um, something that you do with those, but be mindful of um, uh, the, the fact that they share internet connectivity with other devices like your phone, like your computer, whatever, that you might want to protect a little bit more. So a cool thing that you might do is actually setting up an extra network on your like home router in order to just like enforce a little bit of separation between the, uh, the, the coffee machine and, you know, like the phone that you call your mom on. Um, let's see, what else? I don't know. Oh, yeah. And like, you know, the, the Alexa and the, the smart dot and, you know, the Google Home and like all of those things. Um, uh, you can also like, you know, do the same thing, uh, exercise caution that way. Um, but maybe the, the coolest thing that you can do is like when you have visitors over the holiday, let people know that like their conversations might be monitored and sent to Google. Yeah, I mean, the way that I come down on Google Home and Alexa is just, like, not even once. Like, put it in the trash. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I mean, that might be being a little bit too paranoid, um, especially because some companies are better than others. Like, you're probably a little better off with a HomePod than you are a Google Dot. Um, is it even Google Dot? Is that right? Is that It's an Amazon Echo no, Dot. Echo yeah, the, Dot, yeah. Amazon has the, the Echo. And so actually one of the things um, about that is like it all kind of falls down to um, account management. So like when you think about how awesome Google is in giving you control over how your data is managed, uh, or rather how your account um, is managed and safeguarded, they're far better than Amazon at that. And so like if it all falls down to, you know, like how... Uh, yeah, how easily configurable my um, account settings are, then, like, yeah, I, I would go with Google. Although, like, I totally agree with you, put it all in the trash. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, we don't have to get too far into this, but I do feel like um, buying one of those as a gift is uh, a little unethical, just in the sense that you are, you should have to opt into, you know, putting a speaker in your home at all times. Um but at least some of the privacy settings are, are getting better. So hopefully you didn't buy uh, your mom a, a Google Home. But uh, if you did, make sure the settings are all set up on there. So this is an interesting conversation because I've been thinking about getting a, a surveillance device for my cat. <laughs> um, and uh, I was reading a story yesterday on the New York Times, actually, that reviewed uh, a few of these devices that are like pet-specific, I guess, or marketed for pet owners. And I like the fact that they reviewed uh, they reviewed the devices uh, with that in mind. So, like, they gave them to one other information security specialist, and uh, they did like a you know an analysis of the risks there. And so I was thinking, like, should I buy this uh, pet whatever brand name, or just buy a Nest camera, or should I should I just put a an old Android device, you know, in the corner so I can. Make sure my cat is not killing himself. Shout out to Haven, know. a um, cool app uh, built by the Guardian Project in collaboration with Freedom of the Press Foundation uh, that turns an old Android uh, into a DIY security device. So my fear there would be, like, is that Android phone secure and does it need to be for this purpose? I have the same question because I just got a dog and I have no idea what he does while I'm gone. So if you have any thoughts... On Android, or, or on, on on you know, you want to put a, a security camera in your house to you know see what your pet is doing, but you probably don't want it on the internet streaming at all Correct. times. Um, so um, first off, um, 
it definitely, like, you know, you might have concerns about Android security, especially if your phone is really, really old and not receiving the proper updates. And we all know that, like, as um, Android devices, uh, I guess, get older, um, the uh, their vulnerabilities, you know, like, rise, definitely. Uh, that said, though, uh, a lot of, like, you know, the... Um, uh, privacy piercing invasions that happen with, you know, uh, home surveillance devices happens to be that those devices are exposed directly to the internet in a way that an, a potential attacker could like, you know, just kind of browse them on Shodan, right? Or um, are uh, linked up to, uh, you know, third party services that have not put as much resources into the security of that overall system uh, that makes it vulnerable to people eavesdropping on it or surveilling it. Um, and so we, uh, you know, I mean, you're going to do what you want to do. But ultimately, uh, one of the, the benefits to Haven, um, actually, is the fact that uh, one, you're, uh, it can be configured in order to send that uh, data over signal to your phone number directly. So there is no third party uh, that is able to have like an unencrypted access to, you know, your security stream. Or you can also configure it to um, go over a hidden service over Tor. So hidden services actually cut out like like, you know, the entire, uh, yeah, uh, the the possibility of um, a, another person being able to access it because you share that hidden service with yourself and with whomever else you let into it. So I, I do want to do like maybe a rapid fire uh, advice uh, segment here. And because there are some things that probably everyone should do. I mean, maybe there are some uh, exceptions, but I think for the most part, like, good advice, don't reuse passwords. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Don't reuse passwords ever. Um, you know, use a password manager like, you know, LastPass or 1Password or KeePass. Do you have a favorite? I love all of the password managers. Um, KeePass XC is my hands-down favorite. 1Password, uh, really, really awesome. LastPass, love it. Uh, keep your apps and your operating systems up to date. Always sort of update the software, especially if it's a security update. Um, I don't think there's any controversy over that, is there? No, there's no controversy about that, except um, sometimes uh, I, I find it a little bit disheartening uh, that you might be in an enterprise situation and I give that advice, but then like the IT person is like, well, actually, like, you know, our bespoke software won't work on the new version, so hold off. And I'm like, oh gosh, I'm so sorry for you. I think other reasons people don't update are, you know, the pop-ups are annoying and they feel like they have they get a security update like every three days and they're like, just I'll do it tomorrow, I'll do it tomorrow. And also sometimes uh, you know, new operating systems on older devices, they run a little bit slower. So I think that's something where the software developers have to get a little bit better at just making sure that their, you know, their updates aren't breaking old devices or making them run super slow. Um, I think Apple's gotten a lot better at that over the last few years. But um, yeah, I don't know. I'm on iPhone 7 and I think maybe the next iOS or the one after that, I'll start to see some slowdown. Maybe. We'll see. Um, other stuff, disable Flash. We, we cool with that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and oh, and luckily you probably don't need to do it yourself because uh, Chrome and uh, other modern browsers already do it by default. I don't know exactly now all the rules, but you sort of don't have to worry too much about that. But yes, you yeah. should be careful. 
by default, Google Chrome, actually, which I really, really appreciate, um, their default setting is to notify you if like a site you're visiting um, requires Flash, yeah. which is great. Uh, Harlow, where do you come down on antivirus? It depends. Um, well, first off, uh, Windows Defender uh, is already like, you know, um, pretty capable. I worry about, or there are certain situations where I worry about like the telemetry aspect of it, where like it will just send random files off of your computer to to Microsoft. Uh, however, you can still take advantage of Windows Defender and still, you know, like uh, tone down the telemetry. I think that's good. There are a couple of good ones um, on the market uh, for, you know, like uh, for your PCs, such as Avira, um, which is based out of Germany. Um, Avast is the old standby that everybody loves as well. And also for mobile, uh, the group Lookout has a great antivirus, especially for Android. Um, and also they contribute an amazing amount of research into uh, mobile security ecosystem, and they should just be like commended for the work that they do. Yeah. Uh, Lorenzo, you went to an antivirus conference to sort of try to answer this question of whether or not we still need an antivirus in 2018, soon to be 2019. So um, where yeah, did you come like down on that? That sounds like the conference ever. <laughs> um, it was, he left the country for this. <laughs> it, was, it was a very good conference, um, but I learned that the question whether you should use antivirus is more controversial than I thought. Uh, I did not think that... Um, my Twitter followers enjoyed fighting on over this so much. I kind of wish I did before writing the story. Uh, but yeah, as Harlow said, it really depends. Um, and what I learned by when I like talk to people about this is that it's better to have it than not in most cases. Uh, but you know, obviously, if you are, for example, let's say someone who makes uh, tools for the U.S. government um, that they use in uh, very sensitive. Uh, operations, maybe you don't want to run an antivirus on your home computer because then those tools may end up getting uploaded to a Russian company (laughs) that may be asked by their government to talk about it. Um, That is not a random example. It's like something, a a story that was reported last year. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I like that word, word, by the way, telemetry. It's a very nice word that it's kind of like, what does it actually mean? And uh, it means data or files from your computer end up on somebody else's computer. So you have to think about whose computer it is and who can actually force that company to hand to over the files. Over. Yeah. Um, so ad blocker. I'm a huge fan of ad blockers, script blockers, that sort of thing. Uh, I think you guys both use them. I am also a thing that I teach people in the low hanging fruit discussion is how to put their shields up on basic web browsing. And I recommend three things, a reputable ad blocker. I personally like um, uBlock Origin. I sometimes like Ghostery. Uh, You know, there are a couple of other ones out there, but like, you know, those are the two that come to my head. Um, Also uh, using a heuristic based uh, tracker blocker like, uh, well, the, the best one is uh, the Privacy Badger by the EFF. And also um, 
HTTPS everywhere. And uh, those three um, are, you know, pretty much like your shields for browsing. And also, fun fact, you should be able to, um, and you have to dig into like the extension settings. But for each of those, enable them in incognito mode. So, you know, when you're doing your private browsing, I'm using air quotes, by the way, when you're doing that private browsing, um, you still have that protection. Right. And on that note, uh, don't go wild on extensions beyond those. Like, True. there have been a lot of uh, sort of dodgy extensions that have, you know, leaked data or have actively stolen data, that sort of thing. So, um, in general, just be careful about what you're, uh, you're giving to Chrome or Opera or whatever you use. Yes. In- agreed. Agreed. Uh, the cool thing about Chrome is, well, Two things. I mean, I uh, I personally wouldn't be as cavalier about the uh, extensions that I allow into my life, but uh, you should definitely be uh, aware of the permissions that they ask for so you can kind of judge for yourself. Also take advantage of, you know, the different personas. So at least if you're going to have like a crazy extension that, I don't know, like replaces, you know, instances of the word Trump with like a picture of a cat or whatever. Um, if you're going to do that, uh, do it in a different persona. So It's not worth it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, well, yeah. Yeah, ultimately it's <laughs> yeah. not worth it. But do that in a different persona so you're just like, you know, you don't uh, expose your um, uh, private browsing or your most important browsing to, you know, a potentially malicious extension. And also there's a cool little flag um, if you dig for it in, you know, like Chrome slash flags uh, that uh, is isolate site um, what's it called? Uh, yeah, site separation. So, it, like, it, what it does is it, it further boosts your ability to, you know, keep um, malicious browsing from affecting other tabs and other windows that you have open. Yeah. Another controversial one. Um, where do you come down on VPNs? I Love feel them. like I feel like a few years ago, it's like use a VPN always, everywhere, even at home. Uh, now there's like a little bit of discussion over like whether you really need to use one all the time but yeah love I, them. I, I love them I love them so much I understand the uh, the controversy there um, so uh, definitely what VPNs do is you know they uh, protect your ISP and f- other people on the network from knowing exactly what you're doing all they know is that you're on a VPN um, and so one of the reasons why uh, certain privacy advocates kind of minimize the importance of VPNs has to do with the fact that and we should all pat ourselves on the back that that uh, our traffic is increasingly encrypted. It's um, only really, really, really amateur and unimportant sites that are not HTTPS. They're only HTTP. And so um, one of the reasons why people were so um, uh, enthusiastic about using a VPN, um, especially on networks that they don't control, like in public, like at a Starbucks or in an airport or whatever, um, has to do with the fact that when sites were um, not encrypted, uh, they were sending a lot lot of data, like such as usernames and passwords and stuff like that out in the clear and hackers can grab it. I get it. Um, And so now like that's less of a danger. And by the way, if people aren't aware, if ever you are on a website and the form for your username and password is not encrypted, meaning it doesn't have an HTTPS, um, you will know that like literally anyone with visibility onto that network could see that. Um, 
So, you know, uh, but that said, uh, VPNs are an excellent tool uh, for, you know, just kind of keeping uh, your browsing history out of the eyesight of your ISP. And from a privacy perspective, especially since like, you know, the uh, um, uh, since it was ruled that ISPs could actually use your browsing data in order to like serve you ads, um, that's actually allowed. Uh, I feel that like, you know, I, I just don't want to give that data to them. So this is actually the primary reason why I am uh, very, very much addicted to the VPN. Right. Uh, so we have time for one more tip each. I'll go first. So one that we didn't we talked a little bit about, but not a lot, is making sure the app level permissions on your phone, um, you know, aren't leaking your location data or, or have permissions that you don't want them to have. Um, I'd recommend just going through iOS or Android and honestly deleting any apps that you don't use or don't trust. Um, but beyond that, you can turn off uh, when they're allowed to access your location and if they're allowed to access it ever. Um, this is especially important on things like Strava or just anything that like maps your positions and then keeps that and uploads it somewhere, um, especially for public consumption. Harlow, do you have any any last uh, parting words? We covered a lot, I think. <laughs> No, I, uh, that is very, very sound advice, actually. I will say one thing. Um, this is an extremely paranoid thing, and this is definitely not advice that 99% of people will take. But turns out Lyft will still work. Google Maps will still work if you have your location uh, services off. You just have to manually type in the address. And also, there are plenty of ways um, outside of accessing your GPS uh, that a an application um, can ascertain where you are. Uh, there's a really, really cool site and project called Wiggle.net, which uh, associates uh, physical locations on Earth with IP addresses. So, you know, I mean, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Uh, since we're all traveling um, in this, these holidays... Maybe don't, uh, you know, don't tweet about where you're going if you don't want the whole internet to know. Maybe don't post a picture of your vacation if you don't want the whole internet to know. You know, like, I, I go back to your original question or one of your first questions, which was uh, my trip to Mexico for the Kaspersky conference. You know, if I was going to Mexico for vacation, I would take different precautions than if I was going to Mexico for a security conference. So think about that, like... Um, you know, when I went to Mexico for that conference, Jason knew that I was going, my family knew that I was going, and probably the internet knew because I registered online. But if I'm going to a personal trip, maybe I don't want to, like, tweet from the airport or, you know, just think about that. Like, you know, Twitter is basically public. Uh, Facebook isn't, but it can be. Just think about that. Yeah, things can be screenshotted and shared elsewhere, even if, you know, even if you have your uh, privacy settings on private or friends only. Um, anyways, thank you guys for coming. Um, this is the audio version of the Motherboard Guides Not Getting Hacked, abridged. The whole version is up on motherboard.vice.com. Uh, you can find it if you Google it. We've updated it now three times. Uh, we'll update it again next year or next time uh, we need to make a massive change because... All of this stuff is always in flux. It's always changing depending on different threats and that sort of thing. Thank you very, very much for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming back. Thank thanks, guys. This week's episode was produced by me, Jason Kebler, 
and recorded by Mitch Rackin. It was edited by Dean White. Thanks for listening to Cyber. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, please tell your friends about us and consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.